The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Listen as I read John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is only flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is God's holy word. My wife and I visited the land of the Bible only once in 1997. Some of you in this congregation were with us then. Fifteen years later, I remember many things from that visit, but one of them was the personality of our Israeli guide, Moshe. Moshe was a man somewhat older than myself. I never asked him his age, but he was an intelligent, friendly, winsome man, had a great sense of humor. He was a joy to know. And I was also quite impressed by his knowledge. I had no sense whatsoever that I was somehow superior to him as an ordained minister. In fact, when he told me that he, in college student days, worked as an apprentice with a world-famous archaeologist named Yigal Yadin, he had my attention because Yadin was indeed one of the most famous Israeli archaeologists, an archaeologist there on the land of the Bible, both knowing Old Testament and New Testament very, very well. Moshe had knowledge of Jesus that would run circles around many Christians, I would say. And so uh, there was certainly obvious that with a touring group of American Christian evangelicals who are concerned for the souls of people, with our group as with others, there were those who wanted to inquire about Moshe spiritually. And I could see, you know, some interesting discussions going on, and I may have had my own with them in a way, uh, in along this line. You know, Moshe, you have had academic training. You know about Jesus. Obviously, you know a lot. What do you think of the claims of Jesus to be your Messiah, Son of God? Well, it was quickly obvious that Moshe had, was used to this, and he expected it. 
And uh, he kind of had his armor ready to deflect such inquiries. And he would say something like, well, I am a Jew, that's what I know, and that's what I prefer. He didn't want to insult us, but he, he did this a little bit, you know. Just, I'm, I'm your guide, and I'm from Israel. Don't expect me to make me your evangelistic trophy. Well, it was sadly clear to us that indeed this wise man, this winsome man, had a great deal of information about Christ. But he didn't know Christ as his Lord. And Moshe makes me think of the man we're focusing on today in John 3, Nicodemus, a Jewish scholar, a temple ruler, a man who was knowledgeable of the kind of things Jesus had been preaching and came to talk to Jesus about those things and did so in a very respectful and polite way. And yet, we have no evidence that Nicodemus was ever converted here in this passage to a true faith in Christ. Now, we do need to add editorially that later on, John 19 reminds us, and some of you probably have already leaped ahead in your mind to know that, of course, he was present with Joseph of Arimathea, same man who brought spices to anoint the body of Jesus and take that dead body to a tomb. We think that means, we surmise that that means Nicodemus had become a disciple of sorts, if not fully a disciple, uh, from this time until that time a couple years later. But in this encounter, at least, in John 3, there's no indication of Nicodemus moving from that polite stature of saying, well, I'm who I am and you're who you are, and I don't think we quite meet. Scripture holds no stronger statement about salvation in Christ by a new birth than what we have in John chapter 3. And it's from Jesus himself. And let me remind you, too, that while Jesus has, we have his words recorded in chapters 1 and 2, and he has spoken things, this is the first extensive passage of teaching. I haven't even read it all, as we're going to go on in chapter 3 next time, Lord willing, where he extensively is teaching now in a doctrinal way. And what's the subject? New birth. Salvation coming by a new birth of the Holy Spirit through trust in Him and the work of God. It's not about religion. Nicodemus came to talk, obviously, about religion. You could even accuse Jesus of being a little bit rude, if you want to say that, about the Son of God. When Nicodemus opened a conversation and said, well, I'd kind of like to talk with you. You must be a godly man. And Jesus plunges right in and says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Really abrupt, 180-degree turn from this sort of polite little theological discussion that Nicodemus wanted to have. The Son of God took hold of the thing by the throat, you might say, and said, look, we're not here to talk about religion. We're here to talk about the power of God to remake a man or a woman completely from within. And without that, there is no seeing the kingdom of God. I'm going to ask you, first of all, I actually have four points today, so none of them can be too long. First of all, asking you in verses 1 and 2 to see the subject of dead-end rational religion. Nicodemus, we're told, represents the Pharisee party, which is one of the two parties, just like we have two parties in Congress. Believe me, these Pharisees and the Sadducees 
agreed with each other about as much as the Tea Party Republicans and the Liberal Democrats do in America today. They did not get along. They did not have the same viewpoint, but they were both on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the Bible scholars. In that sense, we respect them. They revered God's written word, while the Sadducees were rather liberal about that whole thing. And they loved God's word and tried to follow it, but quite often they would miss the forest for the individual tree branches. But Nicodemus is not an antagonist as he comes. He's respectful to Jesus. He calls him rabbi, which was a title for a scholar, for a respected teacher. And have in mind, Jesus hadn't had any of the formal training that someone like Nicodemus would have had. So he was bestowing a a good accolade on Jesus and, and respecting him by giving him this title. Now, commentators write quite a bit about the fact that he came to Jesus by night, as verse 2 mentions. Some people wax really eloquent about this and say, well, Nicodemus was a coward. He was fearful. He only could come under the cover of dark so nobody would know that he was talking with Jesus. I think you can almost get a little carried away with that. It could be just as easily surmised that he came in the nighttime because it was a less crowded time when people weren't all around Jesus. And if you want a private individual conversation, you come when you know someone's not as busy. But there is, however, an element in John that should be thought about when we hear this phrase, by night. You're going to hear it again. Uh, The most ominous time it is used is when Judas goes out from the upper room and it says Judas went out and it was night. It wasn't just dark outside. It was the time for Satan's activity. Judas went out into the realm of the evil one. There may be some of that here in the sense that Nicodemus represents unbelief, coming to Christ who is the light of the world. And he doesn't immediately see that light or come out of the darkness. But let's be kind to him for a while. He wasn't really a coward. He comes and he says, Jesus, you're a teacher come from God. You know, that's right as far as it goes. The problem is it doesn't go far enough. You're a teacher come from God. That's the language of human religion. You are somebody who studied God. You must be close to God. God has blessed you and allowed you to do remarkable things. Okay, as far as it goes. But you see, we have many people today in what we would call a nominal practice of Christianity who go that far. Jesus is a teacher come from God. He's remarkable. He's wise. He says things that are unlike what anybody ever says. Yes, maybe they even believe he did his miracles and so on. But he's still just a teacher come from God. You see what's wrong with that? It's saying, Jesus, you're the most remarkable man in the realm of religion I've ever seen. You do amazing things. You you have godly influence upon you. But that's still saying... You're a mere inspiring human being who's at the top of the heap, perhaps, as far as the evaluation of human religious figures go, but it's not being willing to say, you came down from heaven, from God, because you are God. You see how short religion falls? You're a teacher from God. Is not saying, 
you are God, the Son of the Most High. And that, of course, is the truth that true Christianity needs to hear a person confess, not simply great teacher. Well, let's go to a second point now. We've had Nicodemus introduced a little bit. He's a practitioner of religion. He goes as far as religion goes. Jesus grabs the conversation and turns it on him. And in verse 3, the critical verse, we see him saying this about the absolute imperative of spiritual rebirth. What does Jesus say there in that crucial verse? Truly, truly, that's a formula statement. Pay attention, pay close attention. I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me remind you of the last verse of John 2. I didn't particularly emphasize it in a sermon, but the last thing that John 2.25 had said right before this is, Jesus knew what was in a man. He didn't have to be told what kind of a man Nicodemus was. He knew. He could see into him. He could see the need this man had, not to have a polite theological discussion about little nothings, but rather to go to the heart of the issue that this man needed to hear. And so he put before him the absolute imperative of spiritual rebirth and did it in a very abrupt kind of a way. And here in the very first extended doctrinal portion of the Gospel of John, Jesus is on this subject of spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus, you're not alive as far as God is concerned. You see, Scripture teaches that that we start out dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born as as little babies, and everybody says, oh, when you're seven pounds, two ounces, you're just adorable. I couldn't help but notice. We had two little ones. I think they both made their way out since I noticed at the beginning of the service. But one is here only maybe the second or third time they've been in service. One was here for her very first corporate worship service, 10 days old. Beautiful little children. How thankful we are to God for them. But the spiritual analysis of those little children and of every one of us, spiritually, we're not so adorable because the Scripture says we come into this world spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's, that's a hard verdict to tell the mom or dad of a beautiful little child who everybody's admiring. Religion can't help you with that state of spiritual deadness towards God. You need the life of God to be born in you just as you were once physically born into this world. If you see what Jesus was doing here, this was a very accomplished man. You know, he probably had some kind of a ministerial robe on, uh, some kind of a badge of office that would cause when he walked down the street, people say, oh, there's, there's one of the Pharisees. And, and, you know, some might say that with animosity, but many would say it with admiration. Oh, there's a scholar of our faith, a ruler of our people. And suddenly Jesus said in this one sentence talking about the absolute imperative of spiritual rebirth, he basically swept away everything that Nicodemus stood for. This educated, refined man of a good family, a son of Abraham, a ruler somebody who studied the Word of God, who held political office, is being told, you're nothing unless you have a whole new beginning. That's radical talk. 
Uh, this man would have been understood if he got mad and said, well, well, I don't know how to reply to that. I'm out of here. He didn't leave, but he probably wanted to. Now, what he was being told was, you need to be born again or born from above. Maybe you say, well, which is it? And my answer is, yes. It's both. You need to be born anothen in the Greek language, and the word both means another time and from above. A birth that is not from this earth merely. It means both things, and it's a double-layered meaning in this text. You don't have to choose between them. Do we have any examples in Scripture preceding earlier than John or even later than John about this new birth? And the answer, of course, is yes, we do. In a place like Ezekiel eleven nineteen, we have the Lord's prediction that what he would do for men in the latter days is to take away their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That's new birth. In Romans 6.13, Paul wrote about being made alive from the dead. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, a very familiar place, we read about anyone in Christ being a new creation, created all over again. In Ephesians 2.1, we read about believers being those whom God has quickened. I think that's a term that uh, the medical practice uses, I believe, today for the first movement of a child in his mother's belly. I'm sure you moms can remember the thrill of your first child stirring in your body. It moved. And you want your husband to feel that. Quickening, new life. 1 John 3.14 calls it passing from death to life. 1 Peter 2.9 speaks about it in a very graphic and important way that new birth in Christ, Peter says, is, quote, being made a partaker of the divine nature. You hear that? The very life of God entering our life. And that is not assumed to be something that we have when we're seven pounds, two ounces, and all pink and cute. That's something God has to impart in us that is not a part of natural birth. God's own life being put in us. We're made a new being. We're changed by that. We have new desires, new interests. All of a sudden, things open up to us. You know, we read about the Scriptures becoming a new book. People say, I've looked at the Bible. I never, it never made any sense to me. I thought it was just nonsense. And now they read the Gospels and they can't get enough of it. It jumps off the page. Why? Because they now have the eyes of the Holy Spirit of God. John Calvin said about new birth that it is not a new, a mere amendment to some small portion of us, but it is rather the implantation of an entire new nature. We're not alive spiritually before this. When the life of God comes to us, we are alive, not just for a moment, but for eternity. And Jesus said, Let me be imperative about this. This must happen. This is not optional. This is not a program for some spiritual, you know, uh, if you, in high school or college, I remember teachers would sometimes lay out something for extra credit. I don't know why. I always kind of resented that. I always say, well, give me the work I'm supposed to do, and I'll do it the best I can. 
But some people, oh, you want this extra project, you're going to boost my grade. And people think of it this way. Oh, to be born again, well, that's for extra credit Christians. I remember meeting a, a woman many years ago who heard I was a Presbyterian minister and she wanted to ask me, to her Presbyterian meant, oh, you're in the liberal spectrum of, of Protestantism. And she said, early in our conversation, she said, uh, well, at least you're not one of those born-again Christians. And I'm afraid I pulled a, a Jesus on her and was a little rude and said, is there another kind? And I had the opportunity to tell her, indeed, I was one of those born-again Christians, and I wished that she was too. This is a mandate. You must be born again. This is not an option. Without the new birth, you are a stranger and an alien to the work of God in you. Thirdly, we go to verses 5 and 6, the heart of the passage, where Jesus says now this rebirth is something that is entirely of divine origin. For quite a few weeks now on Route 23, uh, coming in towards Manheim Township, I guess it's actually in Manheim Township, I've passed a church sign where they put messages out, and I usually notice what people put on church signs. And this one hasn't been changed because I guess the snowdrifts have made it difficult to get to. So for weeks, it has said this, God allows do-overs. God allows do-overs. I thought, okay, I'm fine with that. That's a spiritual truth. Yes, the Lord indeed allows you to repent. You did something wrong. You sinned. You made a mistake. I want to do better, Lord. Forgive me, and, and I'll do it differently. And the Lord certainly allows and is merciful and blesses that. But I would say to you that does not apply to this issue of the new birth. Because the new birth is not something we do. It is done to us. It is entirely of divine origin. This passage makes this absolutely clear. It is done to us, not by us, by the power of God. I spoke to you just before Christmas, and in fact, I believe that message was on the radio this morning from John 1.13, that you must be born of God. Maybe you're saying, I think I heard this sermon not so long ago. Well, John 1.13 did say indeed that we need to become children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of a man, but of God. And we spoke, we introduced the concept there. Here's the same concept Jesus is elaborating now. And one of the things he's saying is it's entirely of divine origin. He states it this way, unless you're born by water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean, that phrase, by water and the Spirit? I have one commentary in my possession that gives 14 pages to that. What does water and the Spirit mean? All the possible, there's about seven possible meanings. This is what theologians make a living with, folks. Uh, I'm going to give you three and tell you the one that I think is correct. Many people would argue that water, born by water and the Spirit, means baptism. Uh, there are Christians that the minute they see water, boom, baptism, has to be baptism. Well, we think it's absolutely wrong. The idea that baptism causes our new birth is nowhere taught in the Bible. I challenge you to show me where there, that is taught, and yet many believe that. Besides the fact that Christian baptism didn't even, I think this is decisive, Christian baptism didn't even exist 
when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Nicodemus wouldn't have had any idea what water he knew about John's baptism, but he didn't know about Christian baptism at this time. It hadn't been, ta- been used yet. I think that the idea of water as baptism there is just wrong. Secondly, another fairly enticing interpretation, and one I've used to hold for a long time and I've moved away from it, is the idea that water could simply mean somehow an association with the natural process of natural birth, the amniotic fluid. A child is born in a very liquid environment, as most of you know. And so Jesus is saying, unless you're born by the the waters of birth that are part of a woman's birth process, and the Spirit, in other words, two births, natural and spiritual, you won't see the kingdom. That's a sort of an enticing interpretation, but I've come to believe, along with others, that it probably is not the best understanding. I'm taking sides with those who believe another thing about this. And it's the less obvious, and often, you know, we want to side with an interpretation that's more obvious. This time, I think it's less obvious. That water here should not be understood literally to mean the liquid that's in my cup here in the pulpit that I'll take a quick sip of. Thank you. It's not literal water. It rather is a symbol for washing, God washing us. And quite often the Scripture talks about the way in which the Word of God washes and cleanses His people spiritually. A good example of that, a prime example, would be Ezekiel 36, 25. Non-literally, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. That doesn't mean God takes his hands and literally sprinkles water. He's speaking symbolically. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you and give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. 1 Peter 1.23 also relates the Word of God to this life-giving role, that we are born again, Peter said, by the imperishable seed of the Word of God. God's Word cleanses us and is part of the Holy Spirit beginning His process of giving us new life. Titus 3.5 calls this the washing of rebirth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. I think that's the best way to understand the word water and spirit, unless you want to have the half-hour continued exhibition of the four or five other things that you could understand, but I don't think you want those right now. I don't either. Suppose my wristwatch stopped operating right now. It's 12.04, according to my watch, fairly accurate. John Light has an atomic watch tuned to some atomic clock that's absolutely accurate. Mine's close. But suppose it stopped at 12.04, and this is also telling you that I know it's afternoon, so you know that I know where I am in the sermon. But suppose my reaction to my watch stopping at 12.04 was a religious reaction. I said, what do you mean, a religious reaction? Well, a religious reaction would be, oh, my watch is stopped. I guess there must be something wrong with the crystal. It's scratched and smudged. I better go get a new crystal so I can see better. Or, you know, the band, this is kind of an older watch, and the band has got a weak spot. Maybe, it's the, maybe the band's waiting to break. I'll get a new band. And you say, no, what's wrong with you? Are you dumb? Your watch stopped. There's something wrong inside. You probably need a battery. 
You need something to put life in that watch so the hands are going to move again. Don't you know that, Pastor? Yes, I do, actually. But likewise, you see, rebirth is not something that asks from us a religious response. Do more, do better, strive, pray, study, and you'll get the new birth. No, those are like replacing the crystal on the watch when you need a battery. You need the life of the Spirit of God, and this is a divine, supernatural work that God must do. He must initiate it and carry it through. Now, a fourth point today will be quick, and it's in John 3, 8. You can see where I stopped reading. Jesus said this also, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. He was saying this. Spiritual rebirth is mysterious in origin and yet always visible. You, you know uh, I don't have to talk good or bad about weather forecasters. I, I'll actually talk good about them. They're getting pretty good. It's pretty amazing to me that they can say it's going to snow up till 11 o'clock and then it's going to stop and then it's going to rain. And boy, that's exactly what happened the other day. They called it right on the dime for a change. It's amazing to me that they can say, well, this wind is coming from here and it's going to take this path and hit the New England coast and whatever. They can trace the wind these days pretty well. But I don't think they know why the wind originates. Why is it we get a, what do they call it, a polar something or other coming down out of Canada or then we had the storm coming up out of the south, out of the Gulf of Mexico. Why does the wind do those odd things? This one time and this another time. It's pretty mysterious. We might track where it's going, but we can't control it. We can't say, wind, blow out to the ocean, you know, and don't, don't touch us. We're in Pennsylvania. We don't want this hard winter. No, we're victims of the wind doing what it does. We can't control it. We might track it a little bit. But I'll tell you what we can do, Jesus said. We can certainly see the effects that it brings. You can certainly see what's piled up in our parking lot. You can see if a tornado, you know, we watch TV and see these horrible tornadoes, towns smashed to smithereens. You can see the effects of wind. Always you can see some effects, even if it's just the leaves of the tree rustling. Jesus is saying this is the way the new birth operates. God is sovereign. He brings new birth where he will, when he will, how he will, And there are signs visible as to whether or not he has brought it in a life. You can tell. Not because it's always a tornado. You know, there are folks that want to tell you the new birth is always, bam, fireworks, sudden, fall off your horse in the middle of the road. Hey, there are such conversions, but I would tell you after listening to hundreds of testimonies of people, of new members, they're more rare than you think. Especially if you grew up in a Christian home. Your new birth probably was a gradual process. You became aware of it slowly, that God was changing desires, changing thoughts, moving you in a direction, humbling you, motivating you, opening your mind to things. And you say, I wasn't aware of it the moment that it happened. But over time, I saw the signs of thinking differently, acting differently, having a new compassion for people. 
the new birth displays itself in what we call the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian life. Now, once again, I must stop. We know Nicodemus apparently did experience this somewhere along the way in the next couple of years. Because by the time Jesus was being buried, he wasn't ready to say simply, you must be a teacher come from God. We think he was probably saying, this is the Son of God whose dead body we're taking to the tomb. My question as I end today is, do you wonder if you have the new birth of the Spirit? They say, well, maybe God didn't give it to me. Maybe I'm not one of those select people that have this birth. I didn't have anything dramatic. I I didn't have the fall off the horse experience. I didn't see any fireworks. I'm going to say, measure the evidence of fruit. Do you have a desire to know Christ? Do you actually love Christ? Do you realize you're a sinner, that you have grieved God by your actions, and that you can't come to him based on your heritage or your ancestry or your good performance? Do you actually repent? Do you desire to lay down your selfishness and your pride and follow Christ in a humble way? I can only tell you those things are evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And they may just be a small spark, not a blaze in you, but the spark of new life is where God begins in all. I pray today that you are one who says, I see the spark. I know it needs to be fanned into a flame, but I see the new life that God has started. I give him glory for that. Thank God for the miracle of new birth by his word and by his spirit. And our Father, I pray that maybe you are even nurturing that spark in someone today. Someone is thinking, I do love Christ. I do want to call him my Lord. I want to know him. Lord, work in me. We believe if they're praying that prayer, you're at work. We thank you. We praise you for new life in the name of Jesus. Amen.